So throughout the Bible, uh, the people of Israel are often traveling, often not in their homeland, often in other places. And this uh, is, is known in the Bible as an exile, that the people of Israel are often called exiles in a foreign land, in a place that they do not, uh, uh, that, that is not their home. And uh, in, the, in the dictionary, the exile is defined as the state of being barred from one's native country essentially is a foreigner. They're a foreigner. And even from uh, Genesis, from the moment that Abraham was called from his uh, family home, from the place where his family lived, into a different land, into a new land that God had promised for him, Abraham was called to be an exile away from his homeland. And this is a theme that is throughout, particularly the Old Testament of what it means to be an exile. They, uh, the people of Israel were exiles in Egypt. They came out of Egypt, came into the promised land, and then they were, they were exiled from their own land into Babylon. Uh, and uh, yeah, the Bible is constantly trying to teach, and God is trying to teach the people of Israel what it meant to be uh, in exile and actually be a firm, strong believer in the midst of being in exile. What did that mean? And that's the story that is unpacking. How do we actually stand strong even though we're not in our homeland? How do we continue to be the, the, uh, the, the people that God had called us to be even though we felt like we needed to be in the promised land, this amazing place? Uh, God is teaching the people of Israel what it meant to be strong disciples in the midst of exile. Now, John Newton, uh, who was a great man, uh, was born in 1725 in London, and he was, uh, lived a pretty crazy, full-on life. John Newton, at, uh, as just a te teenager, uh, was on ships, traveling, voyaging, going around uh, the world. His dad was a shipmaster, and so he found himself on many ships. And uh, at one stage, he was on a, sh a ship at 20 years old, uh, where he clashed with the captain. He did not get along with the captain. And this ship was a slave trading ship at that time. And uh, uh, so because of this clash with the captain, uh, the, the captain booted him off the ship in West Africa, West Africa and um, left him there to be a slave, left him there to yeah, fend for himself. He had no money. He had no family. He was there just as a slave. This 20-year-old guy booted off a ship, in this foreign land uh, and just had to figure out life. And for the next three years, he served as a slave in pretty uh, horrible, tough situation. Uh, but then his dad figured out where he was three years later and he sent a crew uh, and he was rescued. And then on his way home, uh, John Newton, uh, in the ship on his way home, there was uh, almost like a shipwreck situation. The, the boat was going down. There was a hole in the ship. But then John Newton cried out. He cried out to God going, save us, save us. And miraculously, in his eyes, he's, he talks about how um, this wave came and a cargo came out and plugged the hole that was in the ship in this miraculous way like God had intervened. And so Newton, he was like, wow, God is real. There is something amazing about God. And so he got back to London. He changed some behaviors. He did some things, but he still did what he knew he could do. He, he continued to work in the slave trade industry. And the next six years he, he spent as a captain of uh, his own ship, uh, 
uh, transporting slaves from Africa in pretty terrible, horrible uh, situation that these slaves are through. And then uh, at the age of 29, uh, John Newton has a stroke. So this man's living a pretty intense life. At 29, he's had a stroke, he's been a slave, he's gone through a lot. Uh, and he sees this as a sign from God, um, as judgment, going, you're, you're not doing what I want you to do. And so he, he stops what he's doing, he stops working for the slave trade industry, and from that moment, he decides to uh, get into ministry. And so he gets himself into seminary, gets himself into Bible college, uh, and eventually becomes a lay minister, and eventually becomes a priest. And in this time, as a minister, Newton met a, a young guy of the name of William Wilberforce uh, and was a big instrumental part in Wilberforce's life in, in shaping and moulding this man who would be the man who uh, was instrumental in the abolition of the slave trade industry. And so uh, in these younger years, ministering and mentoring Wilberforce, uh, there were moments where uh, Wilberforce wanted to quit politics politics altogether uh, but it was his encouragement from newton and his support that kept him going kept him pushing on it was his discipleship that he gave to him that helped him keep fighting on and uh, it was newton who just uh, continued to be there for him and he was also newton was a part of that community that was a part of the abolition of the slave trade industry and uh, he lives an incredible, amazing life. This man knew what it meant to be in exile. This man knew what it meant to actually be in a foreign land as a slave, not in the place where he was from, but actually experience this heartache and this toil and this uh, everything that went on with life as he pursued his life. And, and he found himself in places of exile. But God continued to provide for him. God continued to be there for him. Now, John Newton is also an amazing uh, poet and hymn writer and most famously wrote um, the, the incredible song, Amazing Grace. Uh, and that song just always grabs me. It always is like, oh, I love that song, the, the lyrics to that song. Um, uh, and even more so, knowing his story, knowing the background of this man who, who lived what it, what it was to, to be in exile, to be a slave, but God had brought him through, that even though he was, he was a part of that industry himself, God had brought him through, that he was redeemed, that he was able to see amazing things in his life because of what God had done. And, and, and just the words of this, this hymn, uh, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. So it's grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That there's, there's this amazing ability to uh, not abandon hope in the midst of exile not abandon hope where, where it seems like it's hopeless, where it seems like there is heartache. There's this amazing ability to continue to stand firm that God will bring us through. And that's the way of the exile, to not abandon hope in the midst of heartache, but to actually learn what it means to stand firm and resilient 
in the world and the culture that we're in. Now, we're, uh, we're going to watch a little video that explains and looks at this even more, a little Bible project video that kind of uh, talks about what it means to be the way of the exile, and then we'll actually talk about why we're talking about exiles <laughs> in a discipleship preach. Anyway, let's uh, roll the vid. Thanks. In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is... Like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect. But instead, they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being. But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So, for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right. This is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime, but then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. 
Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the Apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But, well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. Nice. Very cool. Beautifully done. That is the, the way of the exile, to, to learn not to conform or to be a rebel, but actually learn what it means to, uh, through loyalty and subversion, seek the well-being of the culture, but also know where we stand, know where God has called us, the way that Jesus has called us. So, yeah, why are we talking about exile in a discipleship preach? Why are we here? I mean, most of us are probably born in Australia or uh, don't feel like this is not our home. They're like Most of us probably feel like this is our home. So why are we talking about exile even though we are in a place that feels like home, that doesn't feel foreign to us? Well, the thing is, it's not hard to see that, that we do not live in a Christian culture that we may be a Christian nation, or I don't even know what that means. We've got a Christian prime minister. Uh, but we are certainly not in a Christian culture. That is, it's not hard to see that, that that is what we are in. We're in a, in a culture that is very secularist. It's very individual. Uh, and it is what, whatever you want it to be is what you want it to be. That's the culture that we are in. And we are not the majority as Christians. We are the minority. Christians are very much the minority in this culture. In a sense, we are exiles in a foreign culture trying to live the best way that we think Jesus has called us, but there is another way that our culture and our world is telling us a way to live, showing us a different way that we can either potentially conform to or we could try and just rebel against and just uh, hate on people because we're Christian uh, and the churches that do that as well, which is it's not great. But there's another way. There's a third way through loyalty and subversion that we would still be uh, able to add to this uh, world. We're able to add to this community, but in a way that still stands our ground, still stands what we believe, still stands in the way that Jesus 
has called us to live. And uh, the Apostle Peter also saw this. He's, he recognized this for the early Christians. In his letter to, uh, that he wrote in 1 Peter, he, he's writing to a group of churches in different regions. And, and even though they may have been born in that region, he calls them exiles. He identifies you are an exile. Even if you are born there, you're an exile in this country because we are an exile in a different culture, in a foreign culture, trying to compete with what the culture is trying to tell us on how to live. And so we're going to read a bit about what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 1. And it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God, the Father, and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Even now, for a little while, you have had to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then verse 13, this is where we're going to park here this evening. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. In the midst of exile, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he has called you holy, be holy yourselves in all conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Nice. Nice. A few months ago, there was a book that came out uh, called The Faith for Exiles. Now, this book was uh, based out of a research study uh, that had happened over the last 10 years, researching uh, over around 100,000 young adults. Uh, and these are young adults who have a whole lot of different backgrounds and from different countries, uh, but who grew up Christian and, uh, but, and potentially are no longer Christian or may still be strong Christians today. But this study just went to research and tried to understand what it meant to be a Christian in the midst of our culture today. Uh, and in this book, they identify that we are in exile. We are in exile in what they term as digital Babylon. 
This is their term for what it is to be in exile. We are in digital Babylon today, and there is so much around us. And they, they, they uh, say that we are being uh, discipled by our devices, by our technology, by the things that are around us. So much of our time and energy gets spent on these things. Uh, and they also say, uh, from, this is a quote from their book, it says, Many of us today turn to our devices to make sense of the world, Young people especially use their screens in their pockets as counsellors, entertainers, instructors, and even sex educators. Why build up the courage to have what will likely be an awkward conversation with a parent, pastor, or teacher when you can just ask your phone and no one else will be the wiser? It's pretty profound and uh, kind of crazy to actually realise, yeah, that does happen. That when we are stuck with a, a problem, we often just turn to Google. When we need some solution, we often just turn to YouTube, get the latest top 10 tips, and then we move on. We figure out what's best for us and work it in the framework that fits us, that fits our ideals and fits our lives, and then we go with that. But we are called to stand firm. As resilient disciples, we are called here at C3 North Perth, even as a smaller bunch, we're called to be uh, resilient disciples in the midst of a digital Babylon, in the midst of a, a, of a culture that is not what we're called to be like. God is calling us to stand firm as resilient disciples and to learn what it means to be a resilient disciples in the midst of digital Babylon and learn what it means to have faith as an exile. In this land, and so it's so important to recognize that this is the situation we're in. We can't just be blase and be okay with the fact that, yeah, culture is just like this, and that's just them. We just do our thing. No, we have to realize that this is this could be leaking in to what we're doing as a church, this could be coming into our lives, and so we need to be aware that this is going on, and we need to go, All right, how can I stand firm? How can I not be like that? How can I learn how to not conform to that way of living, but actually go deep with how God is calling me to live? And so this series, Deep Discipleship, is all about actually figuring out and learning how to go deep with the way of Jesus, how to actually identify the, the, what is going on in this culture and then go deep with how Jesus is calling us to live and learn how we can be disciples in the midst of of digital Babylon. It's cool. I like it. I like that term. I really like it. We're in digital Babylon, guys. Uh, and so we're going to have a look at three things that we can do from tonight, three things that we can practically do, and, and uh, it is all outlined in uh, this 1 Peter uh, scripture, uh, 1 Peter 1.13, which is where we're going to land and... Um, yeah, from, from the words of Peter, what he encourages his people uh, who he identifies as exiles, what he says to do. And so here we go. Number one is uh, to prepare your minds for action. To prepare your minds for action. See, the pursuit of goals in our culture is so culturally saturated right now that we are always looking for the next goal that we can tick off our list, that we're looking for how, our, our next goal, and it's, let's complete all these goals, guys. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with goals. I'm not bagging on goals. Uh, uh, but sometimes 
we are so focused on completing a goal and actually neglect the facts that we are trying to become a certain type of person. Uh, so there are certain goals that are, are great. There are goals like uh, losing X amount of weight or finishing a degree or running a marathon. These are amazing things with uh, incredible outcomes. Uh, but it, what is more important than just looking at the goals that we have is who is the person that I am forming into? Who is the person that I am forming into? See, the difference between a goal now, uh, focus and a forming focus is that uh, instead of just having a goal to run a marathon, maybe we actually have this, this feeling of I want to be formed into a runner. I want to be someone who runs. And that's more our goal and more the thing that we're focused on is I want to be a runner. See, the difference is that at the end of the marathon that you tick that box, then you're like, so what do I do now? Um, I've, I've run that marathon, marathon, now what? And so having this focus that's just off uh, the goals but actually on the people that we are becoming, uh, it actually shapes who we are. It shapes who we are becoming. And so there is, uh, that's an amazing question that we can ask ourselves. In the midst of digital Babylon, we need to identify who am I becoming? What are the habits? What are the things that are in my life that I can actually be aware of and I'm, I'm actually changing and transforming? God is changing and transforming who I am becoming. That, that I'm not being conformed to the way that this culture is telling me to live, but I'm actually letting God form who I am. And, and changing me, and I'm identifying who is that person that I am becoming. So in Digital Babylon, let us prepare our minds for action. Let us be aware of the people that we are becoming. Maybe um, you identify that you're someone who is always on your phone, and then you're like, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to become a kind of person that's just always saturated and uh, in entrenched in my phone. Maybe it's, it's a, a negative thought that continues to come up in your mind. And we need to identify that and go, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to become that kind of person that is, has that negative thought about myself. Maybe it's you're, you're, getting, uh, you're putting way too much effort into your work and not actually taking care and looking out for people in your life. Identifying what are the things in your world that you want to become. Who's that kind of person you want to become? Identify it and realize how God is actually forming us and shaping us to prepare our minds for action. Number two is to discipline yourself. To discipline yourself. In the Faith for Exile study um, of all the 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up Christian, uh, so these are people who may have grown up Christian, but this is uh, wh where they're at right now in this study. There's 22% are prodigals. So these, these are people who no longer call themselves Christian. So these, they grew up Christian, but no longer call themselves Christian at all. 30% uh, are nomads. Uh, they call themselves Christian, but uh, they haven't been to church in over six months and rarely do attend church. 38% uh, are habitual Christians. These are people who uh, attend church at least once a month, uh, yet they do not meet foundational core beliefs or behaviours associated with being an intentional, engaged disciple. 
And so that leaves only 10% of the people in this study who grew up as Christians are now resilient disciples. And these are people who attend church at least monthly, trust the Bible, are committed to uh, Jesus personally, and are uh, and express a desire to transform the broader society. Only 10% of Christians in this 18 to 29 bracket are in that resilient disciple. That only 10% are in that place. And so we need to recognize that being a resilient disciple, it shapes us and transforms us. That there is so much that came out of the study that um, benefited what the, the uh, resilient disciple had. That there was so much strength and stability to their life because of their resilience as a disciple. And this word disciple, uh, is uh, the word in Greek is mathetes uh, and is translated as a learner. Someone who is a disciple is a learner. And so it's so important that we learn what it means to be a disciple, to di- discipline ourselves the way that God has called us to live. And even if you think about learning and studying, uh, you know the people who get the most out of study are those who are disciplined, those who put the effort in and try their best to get what they can out of it. Uh, and this isn't just necessarily getting good grades and passing the test because there are always those people that passed the test and didn't study at all. Those people are annoying. <laughs> I was not one of those people. Um, but... Uh, it's more actually about what are you actually getting out of the study? What are you actually learning? Because we can put and disciple, discipline ourselves to learn and to study, but it's when we discipline ourselves, we actually get more out of it. We're actually taking the information and applying it to our lives. And so are we these people that when it, we're thinking about our Christian faith, when we're thinking about our relationship with God? Are we disciplining ourselves? Are we focused in on actually learning, actually taking the time to let God transform us? Are we putting in that effort? And see, this is so important. This is so serious. Our Christian walk is not just something that we can just be flippant about and go with the flow and just figure it out on the fly. All these things that are so a part of our culture that we need to identify and go, no, this is not the way that I'm going to live my Christian walk. I need to discipline myself and actually take my discipleship seriously and be someone who is a learner and growing and establishing this amazing connection with God. And so let us be those people. So a question that we can ask ourselves is, how do I become the person Jesus is calling me to be? How am I that person? How am I disciplining myself to be that person that Jesus is calling me to be? Not someone that I just think is cool and gets what I think I need, but it is actually someone that Jesus is calling me to be. Jesus is identifying me to be. How can I keep being this person? Now, there are so many ways, obviously, um, as we learn and discover in the Word of God. This is such a key for us to discover the Word of God alive in us. And so uh, in 2020, we're actually, as a church, going to do a uh, reading through the Bible in a year plan all together. It's going to be amazing, isn't it, church? Uh, So 
Uh, even at Hepburn Heights, we're all actually doing it as well. Hepburn Heights are doing it. Uh, I think Quinns Beach are doing it. We're all going to be uh, reading through the Bible in a year. And so there are reading plans that are going to be available. There are books that you can um, order. So there are kind of the year one, the one year Bible books that you can order on uh, through our website, through the C3HH website. It's a discounted um, uh, cost. And uh, yeah, we will have them and get them here for you to be able to use in 2020. I'm also going to be putting together a PDF um, kind of two-page version of a reading plan through the year uh, that I'm going to be going through. And um, this is kind of, yeah, based out of a few years ago, Michaela and I actually did this for the first time. We, we read through the whole Bible in a year and it was the first time we kind of did it, read actually through the whole Bible. And it was... Seriously, one of the trans- most transforming things we've ever done. It was so helpful for our Christian walk, that disciplining of ourselves, that every morning we would read this portion of Scripture, that every morning we would take the time to actually really get into every part of the Bible, not just kind of flip it open and, oh, I'll read that. But we actually had this amazing flow of actually learning what the Bible is trying to say, learning the story and the thread that God is is weaving throughout the whole Bible, that it's it's a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so we can learn so much as we uh, dive into uh, reading through the Word of God. And so, um, yeah, I'll be doing a PDF version that will come out in the next few weeks, uh, but you can also order one of these books if you want. But, I, yeah, I encourage you, let's get into the Word of God and let 2020 be a year where you discover so much more about what the Word of God is saying and how God is calling us to live uh, as we dis- discipline ourselves in the way that Jesus is calling us. Number three is that we set all your hope on the grace of Jesus. That these three things that are outlined here in 1 Peter 1.13, this last one, set all your hope on the grace of Jesus. As a disciple, as an exile in digital Babylon, this is the key to how we are called to live as disciples, is to set our hope on the grace of Jesus. Another quote from this Faith for Exiles book is it said, it is easy to call oneself a Christian, but less common to find deep joy in Jesus. That's pretty profound. That it's, it's easy for people to just go, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, cool. That's the label that I have for my life. But it's actually less common to find deep joy in Jesus. And that's what it truly means to be Christian. That's what it truly means to follow Jesus, is to actually find deep joy in Jesus, in who he is and how he has called us to live. See, his presence needs to fuel and strengthen how we live. It needs to be the very fuel that, that keeps us going, that pushes us further. His presence as we draw into his presence and grab what we need, his peace, his, his grace, his rest, his love can be poured out into our lives. Yes, we need to prepare our minds for action. Yes, we need to discipline ourselves. But ultimately, it comes down to setting our hope in Jesus. When he is our true hope, all these things fall into place. When he is our true hope, 
than the, the idols of our digital Babylon that try and tell us how to live, try and conform us in a way of living. We can stand up against that and identify, no, that's not how God is calling me to live. I shouldn't have that negative attitude towards those people. I shouldn't be thinking this way about others. No, God is calling me in a new way. There is a new hope that he calls me to. And so when we, our hope is set in Jesus and him alone, we identify these areas in our lives and we can call them out. We don't take that. Those idols, those things that try and pull us away from God and try and be the ultimate hope in our lives. Those things are not called to be there, but God calls us to let him be our hope. That Jesus would be our hope in the midst of digital Babylon. Great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we must take a step of faith. It means that we can only take this step alright if we fix our eyes, not on the work we do, but on the word with which Jesus calls us to do it. See, Peter knows he dare not climb out of the ship in his own strength. His first his very first step would be his undoing. And so he cries, Lord, bid me come to thee upon the waters. And Jesus answers, come. Christ must first call him, for the step can only be taken at his word. That's the life that God calls us to live, a life that we continue to come before Jesus and say, Jesus, can I take this step? Where, where are you leading me to? Why is, it, why is it that our first step is often our head? Why is it that our first step is often us can, trying to figure it out? And this is me as well. This is so much about what I'm, I battle with, that, that we often try and just figure it out ourselves. Uh, it's because our hope isn't fully set on Jesus. That's what it really basically comes down to. We think we've got our hope in Jesus, but in reality, there is so much that we have just in our own hope in ourselves, hope in our abilities, hope in our work, hope in our family. There's so much that we hold on to that we don't really realize is happening. And so identifying and actually going to God and going, what, what is actually going on in my life? What is really my hope? How am I really living? And what is really the most important things to me and so sometimes i struggle to step out in faith because i've got my hope in myself sometimes i struggle to truly believe in myself that i could actually make a difference and speak something in, in other people's lives because i've I, I i don't have my hope fully on jesus and so this is this is a, the realness of what it means to be a disciple to actually identify we don't have this all together we don't need to have this all together. That's the beauty of Jesus' grace. We don't need to have this all together, but we need to identify, no, this is not the way God is calling me to live. I need to actually come against this and not conform to this way of living and realize that God is calling me to go deep and identify that the areas that I put my hope in and I put my trust in, then they will no longer be the things that I put my hope in and go on a journey of discovering how God is calling us to live and so what or who is my hope in that's like the question to ask ourselves things to consider who is my true hope in 
You see, the time is now. It's not time to just sit around and wait till we get better. Just maybe one day I'll figure it out. Or maybe one day when you know, things all align, then I'll, I'll, you know, things will work well for me. No, time is now to take our discipleship seriously. The time is now to identify and go, no, I, I don't want to live in this way. I don't want to be that kind of person. I want to be someone who is being formed by how Jesus is calling me to live. And what an amazing, perfect time such as now, even as a smaller group, to be a, a group of people in church, to be that for this community. Because this community needs that. This community needs a, a group of people who will stand firm on what they believe, are not wavering and wish-washing in whatever comes as the culture says and changes. Uh, we, we won't be those kind of people, but we will stand firm on what we believe and how Jesus has called us to live, to go deep in our discipleship. And so I am so excited about what this means for us. I'm so excited for us to dig in deep and let God transform us. Let God shape us into his image. And so can those guys who's getting communion ready uh, grab out some communion? That would be amazing. We're going to have a time of communion. Rebecca, if you could play an E. Sorry, I was going to mention beforehand. Just an E because we're going to have a song a little later. Okay, everybody, she's going to play an E, the key of E. <laughs> e major, of course. No, E. <laughs> E flat minor, thanks. <laughs> oh, it's not, it's muted, sorry. <laughs> uh, nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, the time is now to realize and identify Jesus is calling us to a new way, to go deep in Him, to see that we are exiles in digital Babylon, where we're not going to be just relying on what our phone says or how Facebook is, is reacting. Not that anyone uses Facebook anymore, but <laughs> that's right. But we're going to be people who are just formed by who Jesus calls us to be. We're not formed by what media says, what that latest thing is. We're formed by who Jesus calls us to be formed by his voice and we will stand firm with loyalty and subversion in our minds not to just conform or to rebel but be people who are resilient disciples in the midst of tough difficult times